Galatians 2. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Galatians 2. I believe Galatians in the, in the Bibles that are here, uh, I think it's like 970 or 972. Uh, so we are going to finish up Galatians 2 this morning. And this morning, uh, you know, I love getting to be the, the pastor of this church. I love getting to do this, to preach uh, and to walk through books of the Bible with you. And today is one of those passages that I am both super excited to preach and, you know, I can be real, it's church, a little nervous to preach. It is maybe one of the most important topics and doctrines that we can address on a Sunday morning. Um, the theologian John Calvin said that justification by faith is the hinge on which all true religion turns. The great J.I. Packer said justification is the truly dramatic transition from the status of a condemned criminal awaiting a terrible sentence to that of an heir awaiting a fabulous inheritance. This passage that we're going to look at this morning is widely considered the crux, the heartbeat, the very uh, most, you know, the, the focal point of Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. Right here at the end of chapter 2, we got four chapters to go, and right here is kind of the, the apex, the heartbeat of what he is going to say. I said when we started this series that Martin Luther, based on his studies in the book of Romans as well as the book of Galatians, it was those two studies which drove and fed the Reformation movement, which completely altered and shifted the life and ways of the church in the 1500s. And much of that study, much of that work, especially in Galatians, is in this passage. Much of that was grounded and founded in what we're going to look at and dissect today, namely the topic of justification by grace through faith in Christ. You're going to hear that phrase a lot this morning. And I'm praying this morning is one of those days. One of those days that we're going to remember. One of those days where we we rejoice and we celebrate and we marvel at the majesty and goodness of God. And one of those days where we are called to repent of sin, where we are called to recommit to the life that we have been called to, to reestablish our foundation in Christ. And I'm praying today is one of those days where God, for some of us hearing this this morning, like he did for Paul on that day where he removed the scales from his eyes. I pray today is one of those days where he removes the scales from our eyes and hearts so that we might go from rebel and enemy, that someone here, that someone listening to this might go from rebel and enemy to child of God. We got a lot of work to do this morning. I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump into Galatians. Um, God, you're good. Lord, we thank you and praise you. God, we ask that you speak, through, uh, speak to us this morning. You have a message for us. You have a desire for us to know you and know you better and know you deeper and to never be satisfied with how much we actually know you because there is always more of you to be known. And so, Lord, I pray that we would take a step this morning, each of us, wherever it is that we are in our walk with you, that today we would take a step in knowing you just a little bit better, growing in our knowledge and our understanding and our experience of you and your goodness and mercy and grace and love God, I pray that today would be a day where we are able to set aside whatever baggage, whatever issues, hindrances we might have and be able to hear from you clearly, be challenged and encouraged and rebuked, that we would be equipped to be the lights of the world you have made us to be by grounding ourselves in the truth you have for us today. Lord, I pray as I preach that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be glorifying to you this morning. We thank you and praise you. Amen. We're going to be in Galatians 2. We're going to start in verse 15. Actually, we're going to back it up and start in verse 14. 
But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We are justified by faith is what Paul says. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in these first couple of verses, uh, 14, 15, 16. So to catch us up, to set the scene, to remind you from where we were last week, Paul is confronting Peter regarding Peter's hypocritical actions. Peter would normally eat with, spend time with, associate himself with the Gentile believers. It was something that, it was part of his life. He got a, uh, he got a vision from God that said, I'll tell you what's unclean and what's clean. You go and preach the gospel, and all are welcome in the family of God, including the Gentiles, including those outside of the Jewish faith. And so he would spend time eating with them, spending time with them. It was something that the Jewish leaders would look down upon and even condemn him for, but he knew there was nothing wrong with it because in Christ, all are welcome into the family of God. But then some Jewish leaders, some men from James, some other Jewish officials came to Antioch and Peter abandons the Gentiles and only associates himself with the Jews. Thus insinuating, he agrees with them that to be a true Christian, one must adhere to the law of Moses, specifically circumcision. This is the topic we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. And so Paul sees this happen. Paul sees this plays out and he calls Peter out publicly because what he is doing is not only disregarding the, Jew, the Gentile believers, but other Jewish people are following Paul, Peter's lead. And so because it's a public sin, Paul calls out Peter publicly for his actions and the damage he was doing. And he says to him in verse 14 and 15, he says, Peter, we are Jews by birth and not Gentiles. We grew up in this, Peter. We know the law backwards and forwards. Literally, Paul was at the top of his Pharisee class, and to be a Pharisee, you literally had to have the first five books of the, of the Bible memorized. The first five books, the Torah, you had to have it memorized. Paul literally knew the law backwards and forwards. And for the Jewish people, the law, the law of Moses, was built into their lives for generations. It guided everything. It directed everything. It guided in what they ate, where they lived, what they wore, how they spent their time, how they celebrated holidays, how and what they did for work. It was everything for them. And Paul says, Peter, this has been everything for us, for our whole lives, and not only us, but for generations of our families. We have firsthand intimate experience and knowledge and understanding of the law, of its faults and its goodness. And with all of that, Peter, he says in verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ 
and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This word justified, Paul repeats it three times just there in verse 16. Verse 16 is about 50 words. We've talked about this over and over. Repetition in the Bible means something is important. Repetition within close proximity of itself means something is very, very important. The great Martin Luther, as we've talked about, was very greatly influenced by this book of Galatians. And he said this about the the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. He said, it is most necessary that it is that we should know this article well, that we should teach it unto others and beat it into their heads continually. He once, there's a, I don't know if it's true or not, but there's a story that um, someone asked Martin Luther after a sermon one Sunday. He said, why do you preach justification by faith over and over? Every week you preach the same message. Why? And he says, because every week people walk in having forgotten it. So I'm going to preach it until they remember it. Paul is clearly here taking direct aim at the false teachers and their views of how one is made right, is justified with God by addressing and repeating himself in regards to justification. So what is it? What does it mean to be justified? What is justification? It's one of those church words that we throw around a lot sometimes and we don't necessarily always take the time to explain. We got time this morning. We're going to walk through it. What is justified? We tend to use it to mean I'm in the right. Right? Billy said something mean to me, therefore I was justified to punch him in the mouth. I was in the right, I have the moral high ground. That's how we tend to use the word justified. And it's used in the Bible that way sometimes. But more frequently, especially with Paul, he has a legal setting in mind. This word comes from the courtrooms. It was just like a, a word like sentenced or condemned, we have justified or justification. It means to stand before a judge and be declared innocent blameless, righteous. If the judge justifies you, you are acquitted. You are innocent. If he condemns you, you are guilty. Now, we have a system in our country that seeks justice, but we know it doesn't always do that because on both sides of every court case are a bunch of sinners. The person sitting on the bench in the robe is a sinner. We live in a broken, fallen world where justice does not always happen. But when we are talking about eternal salvation, when we are talking about the very place where justice finds its beginning in God himself, he is the perfect, just judge who will always have his justice. So when we talk about God as judge, we know justice will always prevail. Now before we get into how it is that we are justified, Paul makes it very, very clear how we are not justified. He says at the beginning and end of verse 16, he says it is not by works of the law. It's easy to read passages like this one. And even if you just go through the New Testament, it's easy to get this sense that the law is bad. That somehow it's evil and it's this horrible thing. But that's not true. The law was given to the people, the people of Israel by who? Who gave us the law? God. Thank you. Does God give us bad things? No. No trick questions here, I promise. So if God gave us the law and God never gives us bad things, so then the law itself is not bad. As with most of creation, it was made and it was good, but it is man who takes the good thing and uses it sinfully and corrupts it. The law was given, amongst other things, to bring order and to reveal hearts and to point us to our need for a Savior. Because before the law was given, and this is going to sound kind of redundant, before the law was given, there was no law. 
There was no rules. When the law shows up, it's not really complicated either. It's pretty basic, right? I mean, like, don't lie, don't steal, don't kill, don't worship idols. Yes, there are parts of the law that get a little more complicated. There's a bunch of other things that have to do with some dietary things and and lifestyle things. But, But the big ten, right, the ten commandments, pretty basic stuff. But even those basic ones, it changes how the people of God are to act. Because when the law comes down, when God gives Moses the law and he comes down with those two tablets, what's going on? What are the Israelites doing? It's the golden calf. They have made themselves a golden calf. Before the law, as the law shows up, they're in the midst of breaking like three or four of the big ten right off the bat. See, the law brings order because there is chaos with no law. There is chaos with no rules. The law brings order to the people. It also reveals their hearts because quickly into having the law given to them, the Israelites learn that they keep breaking the laws that God has given them. They continuously, for generations, bump up against, rebel against God and his commands to to them. The law reveals the sin that is within them. Right? We said the law is like an MRI. It reveals the places that are troubling, the places that have issues. It does not fix them. It reveals the problem. It reveals in our hearts that we are by nature rebels and enemies against God. And in revealing man's heart, it points us to our need for a savior, for someone who can fix what is broken, who can bring life where there is death, who can free us from being trapped as slaves to sin. The law shows us that we are wicked and in need of someone to help us if we are ever going to have a right relationship with God. But Paul makes it very clear the law does not justify It does not make you innocent in the eyes of God. It does not fix the relationship. And when we talk about the law of Moses and we say the law over and over, it's easy to pawn that off as like Old Testament malarkey. Like it doesn't apply to us. It's old stuff. We're under grace is what church people will tend to say. We don't have to worry about that anymore. It doesn't really mean anything for us. So let's bring it closer to home. Paul says the law doesn't save you, and it doesn't make you right with God. Your stellar church attendance doesn't save you and doesn't make you right with God. Your end-of-the-year giving statement does not save you, does not make you right with God. Your involvement in ministry does not save you, does not make you right with God. Your leading of or attending Bible studies and community groups does not save you, does not make you right with God. Your niceness, your morality, your selflessness, your humility, your kindness, your generosity, it does not, cannot, will not save you or make you right with God. Isaiah 64, 6, the prophet says that our righteous deeds are as a polluted garment. That's really fancy cleaned up language and we don't need to get all the way into it today, but that phrase, a polluted garment is actually equated to a used feminine hygiene product. What Scripture says, what God says, is that the very best, the shiniest, the prettiest, the most Instagrammable actions, thoughts, and stuff that you have in your life, it results in hot garbage compared to the glory and holiness of God. You are not the exception. You are not the one, Neo who is going to stand before God on Judgment Day and be able to bargain and impress him with your goodness and how it outweighs your wickedness. 
No one will be justified by their actions. And if you decide to forego the grace that has been offered to you by God, if you decide to take your chances on your own and say, you know what, I'm good enough, I can be the one who can stand before God Almighty and say, I'm good enough, it will end in nothing but despair and destruction and eternal damnation in hell separated from God for you. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that you are justified. By grace, through faith. It is grace, the unmerited, unearned favor of God that he would send his son. It is grace that Jesus would go to the cross for us. It is grace that God would reveal this truth to us that we are justified through faith in Christ. It is grace that he would remove the spiritual blinders from us so that we might see and believe. It is grace that we would be invited into the family of God. It is grace that we would even have the opportunity and ability to place our faith in him. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Faith that Jesus was God in the flesh, that he was perfect and sinless, and so his death became the ultimate and perfect sacrifice for us. He became a sacrifice on our behalf. He took the place and served our guilty sentence so that we do not have to. Paul says it this way in his second letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is faith in Jesus and him alone that we gain this innocent, justified standing before God. It is not because of us. It's not because we are impressive, we won, we are good enough. It's because of Jesus. It is his right standing, his innocence, his blamelessness. I stand justified this morning in the eyes of God, not because I'm a pastor, not because I went to a Christian school, not because of anything my family or friends or anyone else outside of Jesus did. I stand, definitely, I stand justified definitely not based on the things I've done but rather because Jesus died for my sins and by his grace gave me the chance to place my faith in him. And so when God sees me, he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. Our standing with God, our relationship with God here and now has to be founded and grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ and not us. If your faith and hope is in anything else, you're not a Christian. See, it's not about what you can accomplish. It's about what Christ has already accomplished. Jesus lived perfectly for you. He was fully and completely human, as human as any other human, probably more so than any human that has ever walked this earth. And Hebrews 4 tells us that in every way, in every respect, he was tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. Think about the times that you have been tempted to sin. Think about how hard it was at times to resist that temptation. Think about the times you gave in because you fought and you fought and you just got too tired of fighting and you gave in because it was just easier. Jesus never gave in. You think Satan wasn't constantly trying to get him to sin because if he sins, everything's game over for us. Satan himself showed up. You think Satan didn't have a bounty on Jesus' head? Satan himself shows up when Jesus is at his weakest physically after he's been fasting for 40 days and nights. And we know Satan is clever and cunning and manipulative and still Jesus doesn't give in. He spent his life battling temptation for us. I come back to this image often, but that night in the garden, he's praying to God. 
and he's on his knees, and he's sweating drops of blood. He is so torn up about what's happening. He is begging his father. He's begging his dad, please, if we can do this any other way, please let's do it any other way. And Jesus, in that moment, he knows full well what's coming. He knows Sunday is coming. He knows that he will be exalted. He knows he will be restored. He knows that the stone will be rolled away. He will be resurrected. He will be vindicated. He knows all of that is coming. And still, he doesn't want to go to the cross because he knew the physical, mental, spiritual, emotional pain and anguish he would endure so that he who had no sin could become sin so that you and I might gain his righteousness. See, our justification by grace through faith in Christ, it doesn't mean that God the judge just overlooks our sin. He doesn't just ignore it or pretend it doesn't exist or sweep it under the rug. That wouldn't be just. That wouldn't be good or fair. No, the perfect just judge will have his justice, and he did. Sin was punished once and for all by Jesus at the cross. It is by and for and through the love of God that we have been justified And when it comes to the justification we find through faith in Jesus, while the word comes out of the courtroom, it goes far beyond it. Because in a courtroom setting, the judge might deliver a verdict of justified. He might say, you're innocent, and bang his gavel. And then he says, you're free to go. And the judge gets up off the bench, and he goes back to his chambers, and he takes his robe off, he grabs his bag, he goes home to his life. You, innocent Amen. You leave the courtroom. You go back to your life and your, the, the life that you were leading. And hopefully you and this judge never meet in this setting ever again. Your interactions are done. But when it comes to the great and perfect just judge God, he renders his verdict. He declares you justified. That's not the end of the relationship. That's only the beginning. Because the judge then gets off the bench and he comes and he says, you are mine. And he welcomes you into his family. And he declares you his friend and child. He takes responsibility for you. You are his. He is yours. There is relationship birthed out of that justification. It's not, well, your debt is paid. The transaction is complete. See you later. No, it's The debt is paid, the transaction is complete, and on top of that, your account is full with the righteousness of God himself. And he promises to walk with us, to be with us, to go before us, to never leave us nor forsake us. We are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone and not by our works. You have to hear this and believe this because it is not merely good enough to have head knowledge, to understand these verses and say, yeah, sure, this is a heart knowledge thing. This is a have a true and real faith and belief because anything else will leave you condemned by grace through faith in Christ alone. You understand why Paul needed like 55 words to explain this in verse verse 16. Let's keep going to verse 17. Paul, remember, is speaking. He's having this conversation. He's speaking to Peter. He's speaking in front of a group of people. So he's addressing Peter, yes, but he's preaching to this room. And so as Paul is pushing back and working through this doctrine of justification, he knows to address the likely objections to some, to the message he's proclaiming. And the main objection goes something like this. If justification through faith in Christ alone is enough, if the law is no longer needed, if we no longer need the rules... Well, then people are just going to live their lives however they want. We've already seen, without the law, there's chaos. 
They will take that as an opportunity to sin, knowing that there is always grace to be had. If the law isn't there, people are going to willfully pursue sinful lifestyles. They're going to find themselves outside of the law. That's what he means by finding ourselves as a sinner. And so this objection says then, if that's the case, then Jesus himself is a promoter of sin. He is an advocate of sin. He is a leader of sin because a servant of sin because he's leading you to rebel against a moral, a moral lifestyle that the law would otherwise keep you locked into. Paul's response to that objection right there is certainly not. Literally, may it never be. No, like a broken needle, you guys are missing the point here. Look at verse 18. He says, no, the true transgressor, the true sinner is not the one who believes justification comes by grace through faith in Christ alone, but rather is the person who tries to rebuild what Christ has already torn down. And note the change in pronouns. Look at verse 17 and then verse 18. Verse 17, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. You hear, our endeavor, we too. But then 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He goes from we to I. Because again, Paul's speaking to Peter. And that I is for Peter to kind of take that upon himself. Verse 18 is meant for Peter to think through what he is doing. Because it's not the person who has walked away from the requirements of the law who is in the wrong. It's you, Peter. Because look, Peter, you're in trouble either way because you walked away from the law already by eating with the Gentiles and eating what was already unclean. So by the standard of the law, you are a sinner because Scripture says that if you have one blemish against the law, if you fail just in one aspect of the law, you are guilty of all of it. So Peter, you're already guilty of the law by doing what you were doing before those Jewish leaders got here. And now you are turning around to try and force the Gentiles to put themselves under the law. You are trying to add to the gospel, Peter, which we've already declared it doesn't need anything added to. So now you're in condemnation for that, for adding to the gospel. Peter, you are trying to rebuild what Christ has torn down. Leave it in ruins. Christ fulfilled it. He did what the law couldn't. He justified us. You know this. Live into the new life and reality that Christ calls you to. Peter was trying, by associating himself with these Jewish leaders, was trying to rebuild what Christ has already torn down. And guess what? We still do it today. Look at verse 19. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. We'll come back to the first half. I want to focus on the, the end of that verse, where it says, that I, so that I could live to God. Our natural tendency, when someone gets saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, they're, they're justified, they're welcomed into the family of God. Amen. And usually what happens is that some begin to live their lives like, okay, I was saved by God, I'm justified, now I gotta, I gotta do. I gotta do something. I got to read my Bible every day. I got to pray every day, every moment, it says. I got to be in Bible study. I got to be in church every Sunday. I got to serve. I got to give. I got to do. I got to go. I don't got time for anything else. I got enough stuff to do here because I got stuff to do for God because he saved me, so now I got to do. And when someone asks you, what does it mean to live for God? What does it mean to be a Christian? Typically, our answer is that list of things. It's the stuff that we do. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means I read my Bible. I pray. 
I go to church, I go to Bible study, I serve. I just had this conversation the other night. When we begin to view living to God as the things that we do, the decisions that we make, when we are the subject, then we are no longer living as one who is justified by grace through faith, but rather as one who is trying to rebuild what Christ has already torn down. If you ask the Israelites, what does it mean to be the people of God? They would have answered, it means following the law, doing the law. But if you look in Scripture and you ask God, what does it mean to be part of the people of God? You'll see things like John 4.24, worship God in spirit and in truth. Micah 6.8, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Psalm 51.17, to have a broken and contrite heart. Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. Colossians 3.12, have compassion, kindness, meekness, humility, and patience. It's not about the actions that we do, it is the heart behind it. And look, doing the actions of Christianity, living a moral life, adhering to the guidelines and leading of God in our lives, it's good. It's not bad. Again, the law is good. There's value in these things. There's value in the law. There's value in living into Christian community, to being in God's word, to being in prayer. There's value and goodness in that. Don't ever hear me say it. You don't have to do any of that stuff. It's good for you. But when we're talking about your standing with God, your justification, it cannot justify you. There's value in the law. There's value in the gotta do's, in the actions when used properly and not when you are using it to try and justify yourself to God. The first half of 19, he says, through the law, I died to the law. Paul is saying, when I use the law for its right intention, for the way it was intended to be, when I let it bring order to my life, when I let it reveal my wicked heart and my need for a Savior, it pointed me to Jesus and him crucified in my place for my sins. And just as he died and rose again, so too I died to the requirements and restrictions of the law. The law demands a death for my rebellion, for my sin, and Jesus died that death for me. I am no longer held captive. He says, I am no longer held captive to the works of myself to try and win and earn and justify myself before God. But rather, he says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When you are justified, when you have put your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, a union and connection is formed in Christ's death and resurrection. We get spiritually intertwined into his death and resurrection. He died and defeated sin, so too we die with him to sin and its grip over us. He rose again, living victorious over sin and death, and in his victory we can have victory over sin. This is what's symbolized in baptism. He went into the grave, we go underwater. He came out of the grave, 
He came out of the grave alive. We come up out of the water. And what does water literally do? Washes us clean. It reminds us that Christ literally washed us clean of our sin. And so now it is no longer me. It is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me, guiding me, leading me. It's a new life. I'm a new person. I'm a new me. That old one who was constricted and held captive by the law, that one's gone. We died with Christ on the cross. We have a different life. Our old life, living under the law and our attempts to try and win and earn God's favor is dead. Now we are alive to Jesus Christ and Christ is alive in us. And while we are spiritually united to Christ and it is Christ living in us, we're still here though. Right? I mean, it's still us. We still have bodies. We're still flesh and bones, still grinding it out in this broken world. So as Paul says, this life I lead, I live, but it's different. Yes, I'm still me. Yes, I'm still an individual. I'm still a person, but my mind, my heart, my desires, my ambitions, these things have been changed. And that doesn't happen by magic, or really even at the moment of salvation. Sometimes you might get, you get saved, and sometimes some things might change immediately when you become a Christian, an immediate turning from sin and turning toward God. But in general, as you walk and live this life in the flesh to see real growth and change and transformation in your life, again, it's not about what you have done or can do, but it's about living by faith, trusting him, leaning on him. Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. To live by faith means to trust God and know that he knows what is best for you. And he proved it. And that motivation was motivation enough for Paul. Because Paul is willing to leave his old life and accept, live into the new life, live by faith, which means I'm not in control anymore. I'm not in charge of this life. Why? Because God loves you. God loves you. You can trust him. He loves you so much he gave his son to die for you. God proved his love, his goodness, his gentleness, his holiness in sending Jesus to die for us. And so we know enough of who he is to say, look, God, I trust you with my eternity so I can trust you with the rest of my mortality. And even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's counter to the world, we still live trusting in the Son of God. Because to live any other way, as we see in verse 21, to live any other way is to put myself under the law, is to put myself back under what Christ has already come and fulfilled to try and fight and do the work my way, to try and say, I can do it better, to try and say, I can earn God's favor. And to do that is to nullify and cancel and destroy the grace of God he has offered you. To think, because I can do it myself, is to say that Christ died for no purpose, that he suffered for no purpose. But the truth is, we can't do it ourselves. We can't and we won't. Look, I don't know where you're coming from this morning, but some of us I know in this room, I know there are some here today who hear this who need to repent that though they believe they have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, they don't live like it. And need to stop working so hard to earn something that you already have. If you are a Christian, God loves you in this moment right now as much as he ever will. Repent of your works-based self-righteousness and rest under the grace that has been given to you. 
And for some today, I pray that today is that day, regardless of your background, regardless of your status, regardless of maybe you thought you were a Christian, but upon hearing and really working through this, you realize maybe I'm not. Or maybe you came here this morning and you know you're not a Christian. Let today be that day that you find yourself justified and declared innocent and righteous and given the righteousness of Christ. You could do that today by telling God right now, in your head, in your heart, without making a show of it, without doing anything outward. You could do it right now to God and admit your need for him. Admit the reality that you have sinned and separated yourself from God. Admit that you can't do it on your own. You can't find your justification on your own. Believe that Jesus died for you, for your sins, to give you forgiveness. You might not have all the mechanics down. You might not have a full, complete theological understanding of all of the implications. If you know that Christ died for your sins, that's enough. God hears that prayer and loves that prayer. Admit your need for him. Believe Jesus died for you and choose to receive Jesus as your Savior. Choose to be crucified with Christ. Choose to live by trusting God's goodness for you and in you. Choose life over death, light over darkness. Choose grace over works because works won't do anything for you. Brothers and sisters, if you remember anything from this morning, justification, your innocence, your right standing with God comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your word, your truth. God, we may, may we be a people who hear the word and respond to it. And for some of us, that means respond by repenting of our sin, repenting of our self-righteousness, repenting of this desire to try and earn your favor and earn your love. For some, responding to it means coming to you for the first time, admitting their need, believing that Jesus died for them, and choosing Christ as their Savior. Oh God, let today be that day for some. Let today be that day of newness, of new life, of new hope, of restart, of reset. Let today be that day. God, as we go into this world, as we live in this world that says that it seeks justice but doesn't always find it let us live as those who have been justified who have been made innocent who have been given a new relationship with you and let us be advocates for that new relationship let us be lights that point others to you not because we want the credit not because we want our name exalted but because we want you exalted because we want more and more people to come to know how good and holy and wonderful you are that life can be changed here and now, that salvation isn't just a for later thing. It doesn't just affect eternity, but affects right now. It affects our current standing, our current lives right now can be changed by having a right relationship with you. God, I pray that you would help us be those advocates, that you would help us be those ambassadors for Christ. You have called us the lights of the world. We need you to help us shine brightly. We can't do it on our own. And we know that you would not call us to something you wouldn't also equip us to do. So God, we thank you now in advance for the opportunities, for, the, for those moments that we can step into to be the lights of the world you have made us to be. We thank you and praise you. Amen.